There are still people coming in, so I'm not sure if we should wait another couple of minutes or if you guys are like, nah, screw them. <laughs> wow. Wow. This is cool. So I think I know there's some familiar faces in the crowd, and I've definitely seen some of you before. So some of you may have been to a few of my talks before, which is, which is so wonderful. Um, you might have noticed that I tend to say the odd bad word occasionally, right? This year at PAX, PAX have partnered with Generosity, who are a 100% volunteer-organized um, charity organization. 100% volunteer means that they give absolutely every single dollar that they take to the charity that they're supporting. This year, they're supporting the Black Dog Institute, which do all sorts of wonderful uh, initiatives and programs and support for mental health initiatives. So what I would thought I would do is today we have this wonderful swear jar on stage. And I thought I could monetize my bad habit um, for the interest of, of, of charity. So each time I say a bad word, I'm going to put one of these coins into this, and that's going to represent something. How much is one of these going to be worth, though? That's the thing that we can't figure out. Any suggestions? What's a swear word worth? 20, 20 bucks? 20 bucks. 20 bucks? You're high roller, Mick. It's OK. <laughs> Let's go 100 bucks. No pressure. Shit, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, how about we get into this, I think. Always good to stay on time. Um, so for those who don't know me, my name's Reese Riley. I host a YouTube podcast called Kiwi Talks, where I speak to mainly game developers about games that they've worked on and their field of expertise. So they could be a designer, they could be an animator, an artist, or a composer. Uh, so it's always a joy to speak to them, and I highly recommend that you check it out because you'll learn a lot, of, a lot of things about some of your favorite games, but also you learn about one of the important elements of game development that doesn't really get talked about, and that's the human element. These game developers work tirelessly to bring you joy, uh, and they sacrifice a lot, so I think it's always good to acknowledge that and give importance to them. So, yeah. Now, it's a huge privilege to be here. Obviously, one of the big things is we are celebrating 10 years of PAX Australia. Woo! Yeah! <laughs> I just want to give thanks to all the people that have kept this running over the last 10 years, because I can tell you I've dabbled in a few events, and trying to organize something of this size is a gargantuan task. So, kudos. Everybody. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so is there anybody here who actually doesn't know who this perfect specimen next to me is? I Ooh. hope not. <laughs> they're, they're in the wrong tour. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. So just in case, just in case there isn't, so this is the man behind the music behind uh, Doom 2016, Doom Eternal. Small little games. Yeah. Uh, Wolfenstein. Killer Instinct. Prey. Recently Atomic Heart as well. And the list goes on, but we've got 
to keep to time, so <laughs> we'll be here forever if I go through all of it. <laughs> uh, but it's a huge privilege to have him here. I had the privilege of uh, speaking to Mick a number of years ago. Uh, it was one of the most joyous interviews I've done. This man is a genius, yet he's extremely modest, and he's probably feeling uncomfortable right now because of all the praise I'm giving him. But he's a, he's a great guy, and it's, it's cool to do this in person. So thank you, Mick. Thank you. Reese has come all the way from New Zealand for this just here for today. So thanks, everybody. Thanks, Reese. <laughs> So we're going to cover, well, as much as we can about a range of topics, uh, but I thought the first place to start would be the overall evolution of video game music, because it's changed quite dramatically from the old school days, where composers, sometimes they were using code to compose, they had to work within tight, rigid constraints, as opposed to these days where composers, basically, the only limitation is their imagination. Mm. Um, but I'm wondering how you feel as a composer of the new age and whether you take uh, some of those rigid concepts from the old days into your way of thinking. It's interesting. So the history of video game music is really quite fascinating. It's difficult to pin down where it all began, but a lot of people cite Pac-Man as having the first piece of video game music. And it was, you'd start the Pac-Man uh, arcade machine, and it would play this tiny little... Um, little jingle, this sort of right, and that's kind of often cited as the first piece of video game music, uh, which is pretty cool. So, I mean, this can be a broad topic, but I'll try and sort of condense it down uh, and kind of focus more on consoles, home consoles. My introduction to video games happened with the Atari Twenty Six Hundred. Um, I don't remember where we got it. I don't remember when we got it. I don't even remember too much about it. I was really, really young. But I remember it sounded like a malfunctioning calculator. Um, <laughs> it was so abrasive and vicious. Um, and the music and sound effects and things that were written for those games was really, really simplistic. Um, really, really super basic stuff. It was incredibly difficult to do. Um, so that was my introduction to video games. I grew up in a really small town in central Queensland called Capella. And Capella's a very, very small town. There's three streets. And we used to joke that Capella had the three Ps, which was a post office, a pub, and a police station. And that was, that's pretty much it. But while we were there, there was somebody selling a Sega Master System 2 in the newspaper for like 100 bucks with a couple of video games and things that came with it. And so my parents very generously went and bought that for me and my brother to play. And so that was my introduction to sort of like modern video games, I'd say, there was Sega Master System 2. So for me, that was like Alex Kidd. Back in the days when you could buy a console and it came with a free game, right? And you could just turn it on and start playing Alex Kidd. It's fantastic. Um, Musically, again, though, writing music for Sega Master System 2 and things was incredibly difficult. The, uh, the music was essentially hard-coded um, using lines of code. It was incredibly difficult. I don't fully understand how they did it, and, and going back and listening to some of that stuff now, I'm sort of completely blown away at what they were able to pull off. Um, a few years later, there was another person in the trading post or whatever it was selling a Super Nintendo, uh, with a bunch of games, and my parents went and bought that one for my brother and to play with, and we got a bit of an upgrade. And um, I was blown away by Donkey Kong Country and yeah. um, some of the games that we were playing there. 
And it's fascinating for me, looking back at that period there, the rareware folks were absolutely killing it, you know, from this barn in the middle of the UK somewhere, they were making some of the best games. And over a period of like six years, they made some of the best 2D platformers, so I'm talking Donkey Kong Country. They made some of the best 3D platformers, so Banjo-Kazooie. They made one of the best first-person shooters, GoldenEye. And they made a pretty cool racing game with Diddy Kong Racing, right? They were doing so many amazing things. There was a group of composers there that were working on the music, and they were really pushing the boundaries as to what was possible on the um, very limited hardware that was available on the, on the Super Nintendo. Incredibly difficult for them to do, um, but I'm talking Dave Wise and Robin Beanland and Graham Norgate and Grant Kirkhope and, am I forgetting someone? I might be. You've interviewed all of them pretty much. I have. Yeah. yeah. I've had the privilege of interviewing all of them. Yeah. So they're, they're great guys. Underrated. They don't, give it, they don't get enough praise, I don't think. <laughs> so that, for me, that period, I guess, would really form that sort of uh, period in my life where I really started paying attention to video game music. And, and I remember just sitting there and playing these games and just disappearing into a completely different world with what they were able to create. So for me, that was completely just mind-blowing. Um, at that same time, in the town that we were living, the pub there had an arcade machine. They had two arcade machines, actually. One was a Shinobi machine, and then they got a Killer Instinct machine. And um, that was my introduction to Killer Instinct. Now, my introduction to Killer Instinct was me hiding out in the pub and trying to figure out this whole insert coin thing and how to get around that. And of course, I couldn't. I'd just sit there sort of pretending and packing the buttons. Sometimes I'd find a dollar or 50 cents or 20 cents, I can't even remember what it was, um, and I'd start playing, and then like one of the older kids would come over and put another dollar or whatever it was in, and then would beat me up in the game. Um, anyway, that was my Killer Instinct introduction. But the music in that game was mind-blowing. And from my understanding, the Killer Instinct Super Nintendo version was the first computer game that came with a soundtrack album. So when you bought Killer Instinct Super Nintendo, you got Killer Cuts, which was the music from the arcade game just put onto a CD. And I mean, as a kid, that just blew me away. That was like the best thing that I could, you know, hear the music down on the arcade machine and then go and uh, listen to it at home. So I spent hours listening to that stuff. It really sort of drilled into my head, uh, which, is, which is really quite cool. Now, historically, kind of what was happening there at the same time, um, you had the advent then of uh, what we call Red Book Audio, which was where you would have a, a game that was shipped on like a disc for a PC, and the music was actual audio files, which hadn't really happened before. Previously, it was code, but now you could actually have music files, audio files on the disc that would play back in the game. So when you got Command and Conquer, or when you got MechWarrior 2 Mercenaries, or when you got, you know, those games, you could put the CD of the game into a CD player and listen to the music as well, which is just incredible. So I spent hours listening to that stuff. Um, I remember we got a PC, it was my first PC, I can't remember what year it was, um, but it was the first time I'd played this really horrifically violent game that my parents did not like or approve of uh, called Doom. And... Um, <laughs> And um, um, 
for some reason, like, I can still remember the, the horror of that game. For me, like, just being a young kid, playing Doom on a PC with these midi-file music and the screaming, you know, imps and fireballs and all this sort of stuff, was really scary. It was like I'd never experienced something like that uh, ever before. We have a bug. Um, <laughs> fucking bug. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> And, um, but again, like I did with Donkey Kong Country, Doom sucked me into the world, that virtual world. That was just um, transcendent for me. It put me somewhere else, you know. Uh, I'd be playing it and I'd be so into it and then I'd go to sleep, try to sleep that night and I'd be dreaming I was in that same world, right? It's really hard to explain, I think, to sort of younger gamers what it's like playing a first-person shooter for the first time in like, you know, the mid-90s. It was like something else. It was definitely like, this is going to be the future of entertainment right here. So the music in that game written by Bobby Prince, who uh, is a wonderful man, absolutely dear man, who had he's had an incredible life. Um, you know, he was like signals in Vietnam and he's a lawyer and, you know, also happens to, uh, you know, write some incredible video game music. He did Doom, obviously. He worked on Duke Nukem 3D as well. Um, so amazing musician. Um, but anyway, the stuff that blew me, like Doom really blew me away, but then a few years later, I remember getting uh, this giant black box at, I think it was a Harvey Norman store or something like that, and it just had this green logo on the front uh, of like a Q, right, with two lines going down through it. And I got that and I took it home and I installed Quake 2. And I heard the music in Quake 2. And that there, if I want to pick a moment that was like, that's the point where I decided that's kind of what I wanted to do, it was that. It was hearing Sonic Mayhem's music on Quake 2. That stuff just blew me away. Uh, it still sounds like the future. Um, Sasha is his real name, and I've gotten to know him since then a little bit, and he told me uh, when we were sitting at the, in the back of a cab at the Game Awards, of all places, that he did that when he was 21 years old. Wow. That was his first video game job, and he was replacing Trent Reznor, who did Quake 1. <laughs> so, I mean, shout out to Sasha, incredible guy. So anyway, um, another standouts for me was like when the PlayStation era came along, and now you could absolutely have real audio files at, on consoles at home. And a real standout for me at the time was the Wipeout soundtrack, uh, which was done by like Cold Storage, and those guys, they used to call. It was this fantastic like drum and bass music. It was absolutely brilliant. Um, so anyway, that's kind of there. Then we had this like turn of the millennia stage. We get around to the 2000s, and all of a sudden games are huge, and you've got these endless budgets, and you can do anything you like. And there was this really wonderful sort of period with games where kill it, kill it. I didn't want to kill it. I didn't... <laughs> Go away. Um, where you had scores like Marty and Michael's Halo score and Mafia, the original Mafia and, um, you know, all these fantastic games that just had these incredible scores. A yes for Kid with Hitman 2 and stuff like this. And what really stood out to me about all of these games was that each one of their musical scores had an incredibly strong vision. And I started realizing I was into music at that time, and I was really looking back and seeing, well, the music that I really enjoyed as a kid through video games, whether it was Doom or Killer Instinct or Wolfenstein or... Uh, Quake 2 or Mercenaries at MechWarrior or um, 
you know, Command and Conquer, and then Wipeout, and all this sort of thing, and then onto Halo, and then Mafia, and then Hitman, and all this sort of stuff. Each one of those had an incredibly strong vision behind them. The music just enforced that vision. You can listen to the music out of each one of those games and know instantly which game it's, game it's from. So to me, that was a real like golden era, that sort of period. Now, fast forward to now, and working in games and music, the world is at your fingertips. You can do anything. You have any amount of synthesizers and orchestras and heavy metal choirs if you want to do that or whatever it is. You can do anything you want. But I think there was something really special about the composers who wrote music who were under certain restrictions, specifically technical limitations. And they were forced to come up with something memorable with those limitations. And I think that led to better music. I, I really think, for me personally, I, I, I prefer that music than what we, what we, a lot of the sort of stuff that we have today. And so me and my work, all I want to do is bring things back to that period where the music itself has a really strong vision that supports a game with a really strong vision, and the two create this really interesting marriage. And I hope that you can pull songs out of those games and know that that's from Doom, know that that's from Wolfenstein, know that that's from Killer Instinct, know that that's from Prey, know that that's from Need for Speed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that was a really long answer to your question. That's all right. <laughs> it was good though, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, obviously, it's ten, the 10-year 10 anniversary of the reboot of Killer Instinct, so we obviously have to talk a little bit about that, but you've covered Killer Instinct so extensively that I wanted to try and tackle it from another angle. So, obviously, with Killer Instinct, you worked a lot in terms of with vocals, right, and vocalists, yeah. and I don't think a lot of people realize is when you're working on video game music, when you're not incorporating vocals, you actually have a lot more space to work with, right? In terms of the instruments and make, making them pop. The minute you add vocals, it becomes a lot harder because particularly like say with a pop track or a hip hop track, the vocals have to take center yeah. stage. So how did you approach composing well, any of the tracks with vocals? Yeah, I remember the developers were quite against the idea of having vocals in the tracks because they wanted to make sure that the sound effects in the game were the thing that stood out the most. And I totally support that. I think that's, that's absolutely number one. Essentially, when you're doing sound for anything, whether it's music or a video game or a movie or anything like that, you kind of have to think about that what you're trying to do is fill a box. And you can kind of imagine this box as the two speakers that you have, either your headphones or you've got speakers that are left and right. You have frequencies that are lower to high. So you've got low frequencies, high frequencies. So you have this box. And the way it works is that you put things in this box, but eventually you run into this situation where there's this thing that you want to fit in there, but you can't fit it in there because something else in there is taking up that space. This is a very legitimate problem. You can't just keep throwing things into the box and expect it to sound good. It's a big, serious problem. So their legitimate concern was that if we want the vocals in the game, as in the characters, you know, screaming and punching and shouting at each other, um, is taking up this space in the vocal spot in our box, then your music can't be taking up the same space. So thankfully, I had a absolutely incredible audio director that I was working with, Jed, and uh, he encouraged me to continue with the vocal idea, and we just found a way to make it work. 
Um, we did all sorts of little sneaky tricks that are happening behind the scenes to make it work. But anyway, I wanted to do it for a couple of reasons. Number one, that original Killer Cuts, Killer Instinct soundtrack that I got as a kid was full of songs that Robin Beanland and Graham Norgate had done that were full of vocals. You know, as an eight-year-old, whatever it was, nine-year-old kid or something like that, it sounded like the music that my parents would listen to on the radio, but it was just like my thing. It was cool, right? It was just the songs. And so I wanted to make sure that when we were rebooting Killer Instinct in 2013, that it played a really strong homage to as much of the original game as possible. And to me, vocals in the music was a really important part of that. Hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> Fascinating stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. So I remember when I spoke to Graham Norgate, one of the original composers on Killer Instinct. So a lot of people might not know that he did four tracks for the game, Folgor, Glacius, Thunder, and Jejo. But he actually wrote 60 songs for, for, <laughs> for the original game, which never made the cut. And for Thunder's theme alone, he did 12 different iterations. But I'm wondering if you had a similar process or if it was completely different. No, that's wild, actually. That's incredible. I, um, so when I, I, I got an email one day. It was from Jed, and he said, we're making a fighting game. Do you want to do the music? And I was like, I've never done a fighting game before, but I love fighting games. I'd absolutely love to do the project. Uh, we talked a little bit about it more. And, and typically when you're working on a game, they don't tell you what it is immediately. They use code names for it. Uh, the NDAs are so tied on that thing, I still couldn't even tell you what the code name for Killer Instinct was at the time, even though it makes no sense anymore. But anyway, we talked about it like it was a code name um, project. And, <laughs> but it's funny because that code name starts to erode really quickly when you actually get into the, uh, the thick of the project and you start working on it. And you're like, okay, cool, so what's our first delivery? The first delivery is this theme for a character named Jago. And that was the first time I went, ooh, this is going to be Killer Instinct, it's cool. Um, I mean, as a Killer Instinct fan, I'd been waiting for like 12, 13 years for them to reboot it. Every year I'd be watching E3 going, oh, is there a new Killer Instinct, blah, 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 blah. And here it was, it just sort of came together, which was absolutely incredible. Now, Microsoft wanted Killer Instinct to be a launch title for the Xbox One. And that comes with an absolute hard deadline. So it's the, the console is launching on this date. We absolutely need your game to be ready at that point. So um, the second thing that they were trying to do, which was really ahead of its time then, it's sort of the, become the norm now, for better or for worse. But at the time, it was kind of a, a new thing. And it was this idea that you don't purchase the entire game at once, right? You can get Jago for free, and then if you want another character, you can buy it separately, or you can pay a little bit more money and get the whole thing, for better or worse, whatever. So uh, that was the first time we were doing that. Now, um, so it had to be a launch title, and we had to make each character something special. We couldn't just have throwaway characters because there was this possibility that they were going to uh, be purchased as individual things. Um, so anyway, um, started working on it. Now, we had a few months to begin with to get my feet wet on the project and actually try and figure out what Killer Instinct would sound like. And um, I have never failed so hard on so many iterations. I, um, I made so, I just couldn't nail it. It was just really hard. I think it was too close. I was like too close to the project. And uh, just because of like childhood stories and stuff. 
And I found it really difficult to kind of nail and the new vibe. And I remember Jed, the audio director, he said, like, everything you're doing is just like an impression of what a fighting game soundtrack uh, should be. I want you to do something new. I want you to make it badass. And I was like, okay, I think I can do that. And then I started working with that idea in my head of making this just badass music, just make cool music. And that lesson that he taught me then, I've sort of taken forward as well. I think if you pair a really cool game with really cool music, it just works. It really does just work. I think it's, there's something about that. So thanks to Jed for that. So anyway, the, um, the truth, though, of the story, I mean, this has been talked about a bit, so I feel comfortable saying this, is that we had no money to make the game. Like, it was, um, the budget was tiny, right? It was really, really, really small. Really, really, it's like probably the smallest budget game I think I've worked on. It was crazy. Wow. Um, for better, for worse, whatever. It is what it is. Um, but everybody on it was incredibly passionate and poured the heart and soul into it, and, you know, it, it became what it became. Um, but anyway, I remember uh, I had Jago down, and I had Glacis down, I had the main theme down, and I had, oh, uh, gosh, Sablewolf's theme down, and then we had uh, Thunder's theme coming. Mm. And I was like, okay, I really want to put vocals into Thunder's theme, um, but I just don't have budget to do stuff. Now, to be fair, the team did amazing stuff with Thunder. They uh, took the initiative to go work with Nez Perce tribe in uh, the US, and they worked very, very closely with uh, representatives of that community to design a really fantastic character that everybody was very happy with and very joyous with, um, including the language and elements of the music that are, that are incorporated, instruments that are incorporated, all that sort of stuff. Um, but I still needed more vocals. And I thought, well, how can I get vocals uh, on the cheap, right? So uh, I saw the first ever PAX was coming up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I had this thought, like, oh, what if I just take some microphones along and I'll do a talk at PAX and I'll talk a little bit about Killer Instinct. I'll take some microphones along and I'll record the audience doing some shouts and chants. And that's what I did. I didn't ask permission. Um, <laughs> ask for forgiveness. <laughs> Give her permission. Um, and out of my own curiosity, that was 10 years ago. How many of you came to that session? Oh my God, wow. you were kidding me. Wow, it means so much to me to see that you've all come back again. That's so cool. Thank you so much. So I set up microphones at PAX, and as you folks know, because you were there, um, we recorded the crowd. Um, Microsoft, then they found out about it. Um, we had a really good handler at Microsoft that essentially let Jed and I be like children in the backyard. And um, the, the person at Microsoft occasionally would just like peek over the fence to make sure we hadn't lit anything on fire, and then they'd, they'd go back. Uh, thankfully, it didn't, didn't cause too much of a thing. Um, but I remember there were so many cool things with that project. One was that Robin Beanland, um, who still works at Rareware, sent me the original Pro Tools sessions of the recording sessions that they did back in the 90s for the original uh, characters. And uh, he said, you know, we didn't really do too much. Don't expect too much from these sessions because, you know, we didn't have any money. And I'm like, wow, what's fucking changed? <laughs> um, <laughs> 
They, he told me they recorded the vocals for these characters at the end of a hallway and underneath a giant mattress that was like their vocal booth and things. Um, but I remember, like, you can, I've got the Pro Tools sessions at home and you can go through it and you can hear those, like, for me anyway, it's very special, but I can hear those sound effects that I heard as a kid over and over and over and over and over again. I can hear them in the room recording that sound effect and it is the most special thing. For, for someone like me, that was, like, just so special to have that. But I'd never heard that story about them doing like 12 versions for Thunder. I didn't have the time to do that. We had one month to do a character um, by the end of it. So that's right from the design to the initial iterations to the feedback round to the uh, commitment to this is what we're going to do to the recordings to the mixing to the mastering to the trailer uh, that we do with Max Maximilian. Um, and then that was it. So it was one month, so four weeks. And we did this like just bang, 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 bang. So I couldn't have done 12 versions. It would have, wouldn't have been possible. Hmm. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask about is uh, main menu themes. Because mm. when you're playing a game, the first thing that you usually see and the first thing you usually hear is the title theme, the main menu theme. I suppose this is a two-part question. But uh, in terms of how you go about composing that, and I suppose in your mind whether you think it's memorable, and in the case of, say, Doom Eternal, you did a remix of Bobby Prince's opening to Hell, right? The yep. woo doo 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 Sorry, I butchered that. Sorry, Bobby Prince. But uh, I'm just wondering what your approach is usually to composing for a, a main menu theme and why you chose, I suppose, the opening to Hell remix for yeah, Doom Eternal. Yeah, that's cool. Um, I, for me, the main menu theme is like the most important thing. I get really disappointed when there's this fantastic game that comes out and it's got a real kind of throwaway main menu theme that just sort of sits there in the background. For me, it's a great opportunity to reinforce the vision of the project from the get-go. It's like straight away, you can hear it straight away. And um, so it's something that I like to spend a lot of time on. I don't typically like to do them at the start of the project because at the start of the project, you don't really fully have the solid idea of what the project feels like. You have a bit of a vague impression, but it's not until you've spent, you know, hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and hours on it, and you can really get the, the feeling of the project under your fingers, sometimes we say. Like, you just, you get to the point where you, you in, uh, intuitively the music that you write is appropriate for the project. So you get to that point. Usually at that point, that's when I like to do the main theme and spend a bit of time on that, getting that really good. Um, the Doom 2016 one was really tricky because it was being made for a demonstration at a, I want to say a Gamescom, it might have been a QuakeCon or something like that. But anyway, they were showing the game publicly and people were going to play it and potentially the people could sit there for quite a while on the main menu screen and, you know, uh, experience Doom for the first time in, well, was it 10 years or something, I think, since Doom 3? So quite a long time. Mm. Um, so that main theme needed to fit that, so that's why it's seven minutes long. Um, but anyway, um, so I don't know where I'm going with this. Where am I going with this? Um, <laughs> Doom 2, I swear. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> Doom Eternal for me was always Doom 2. And um, there's this funny interview I did when we were talking about the heavy metal choir. And um, just before they started rolling the interview, they told me what the name of the Doom game was actually going to be. I thought it was going to be like Doom 2 or something like that. And this marketing person says, no, we're going to call it Doom Eternal. And I'm like, okay, yeah, cool, whatever. But you can see my face in the interview. I go to say Doom, and I look over the screen, and I go like, Doom Eternal. Like it's some... Um... <laughs> anyway... Anyway, where am I going with this? So, um, 
Doom for me was always, so yeah, Doom Eternal was always Doom 2, and I was constantly on that project trying to get more aspects of Bobby Prince's Doom 2 score into the main, uh, into, the, into the game itself. And so the main menu theme was a, just an attempt to sort of get that in there a lot. I looked at a lot of the different songs on uh, Bobby Prince's original Doom 2 score and decided that that one probably would be able to be the most appropriate choice for a main menu theme, uh, which is where that came about. Did you sample that sine wave directly or did you recreate it from scratch? Uh, the whistling? Yeah. Oh, gosh, I can't remember, actually. Good question. I might have actually dug up. So the original score was MIDI files. And so when you get the game, it, it's, it comes on floppy disk or whatever, whatever it did at the time. And then on that, there's no actual music. It's just a series of MIDI files or code or whatever it was that would tell your sound card what to play. So depending on what type of sound card you had, you could have potentially gotten slightly different sounding music. Um, one sound card would have a certain drum kit and an electric guitar sound and a bass sound and synthesizer sounds and whatever, and it would sound one way. And then another sound card would have a different sounding guitar and different sounding drum kits and all this sort of thing. So, I mean, talk about an absolute fucking nightmare. Um, <laughs> I don't know how that, I bet, there's something about that though, just to get back to that point, that they were working under those restrictions. So Bobby Prince would have known that. He probably would have had several sound cards to, to test it on, I would imagine. I'm just purely speculating there. Um, but it would have forced him to focus on things like melody and harmony and rhythm and themes and these really, really important musical aspects that I get so disappointed when I don't hear in modern scores. I want to hear a strong melody. I want to hear a strong harmony. I want to hear something memorable, something special. So I think because of those technical limitations, he was able to come up with music that was more memorable. Um, I think I sampled a Sound Blaster 16's whistle sound. Right. And that would have been where that whistle sound came okay. from. Okay. Because mm. uh, I did an interview with Mick a couple of years ago, and he mentioned that, or you mentioned that, you took Spinal's xylophone bones, yeah. you sampled that, and you sampled the Cinder's yeah, as well, yeah, right? Yeah. Is there any other things that you've sampled directly? Oh, it's a lot. A lot of it usually comes out of frustration. Um, Usually I'm kind of sitting there and, so let's think about it, right? You've got this sound card and it has its electric guitar sound, its drum sound, its bass sound, its synthesizer sounds, etc. The upside of that is that the people manufacturing that sound card had to make sure that the sounds were actually quite good because the consumer would hear that sound over and over and over and over and over and over again. It's not like now where we have access to literally like terabytes worth of possibilities. Bobby Prince, when he was doing that, would have only had that one guitar sound on that one um, sound blaster or whatever it was. So they had to make sure that the sounds were somewhat passable and quite good. And it's interesting, like you mentioned on the Spinals theme there, I tried to get, if anybody's not familiar with Killer Instinct, it's a fighting game, one of the characters is a skeleton who's a pirate. Um, that's essentially what you need to know for this. So um, in... Bob, in um, Robin Beanland's original spinal theme, there is a really strong xylophone, which I think he was trying to mimic like bones, like you imagine like the old cartoons where somebody would play, you know, a xylophone bones and things like that. But anyway, with all my modern tools, with my like, you know, synthesizers and orchestras and uh, terabytes worth of sounds, I couldn't find anything that was as good as that original um, bone sound. So I just took one note of it, threw it in a sampler, and that became the, the thing there. 
Well, if it saves time, then <laughs> sure. all for it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one thing I wanted to address, uh, because I don't think you can talk about anything creative these days without addressing the elephant in the room, which is AI. Cool. Uh, and how do you feel it's going to change the musical landscape? And have you mucked around with any AI tools? Wow, that's an interesting question. Uh, have I mucked around with AI tools? Yes. Um, Which ones? Oh, all sorts of different ones. Um, there's lots of stuff that I, I get to play with that um, other people don't get to play with. But um, <laughs> there's some amazing stuff that I've come across. Uh, I've been shown some stuff where you can take a drawing, right? So you can sketch uh, a gun, for example, and then throw it in an AI tool, and it will give you back a fully modeled um, like model ready to go in the game just from a sketch. So that kind of stuff's pretty simultaneously exciting and scary at the same time. Because typically, uh, that could be the work of five people, maybe. Sometimes one person, sometimes could be five people just to get that done. And this AI can do it. So it's definitely on the horizon. Um, it's fascinating in terms of music. Let's bring it back to that, I guess. Yeah. Because... Um, it's an interesting one, right? There's this issue that they have with self-driving cars at the moment, where it's kind of relatively possible to make a self-driving car drive forward, drive backwards, turn left, turn right, brake at a stoplight, etc. right? To make a self-driving car react as good as a human in wet weather at 2 o'clock in the morning on one-way streets in the middle of England, or whatever, is really difficult. And you kind of realize that what you need to create isn't a self-driving car. You have to create a completely artificial human to react the same way that a human does. And I know a few people have spoken about this before, but I feel the same way with music. You can get AI tools that will do the equivalent of turning left and turning right and moving forward and moving backwards and stopping when it's meant to stop and all that sort of thing. And anybody could listen to it and go, yep, that sounds like music. But to actually get, you know, a score like Austin Winter's Journey or Gareth's um, uh, Wisps, um, oh gosh. Uh, oh, will, of, will of the Wisps. Will of the Wisps, thank yeah. you. Um, that requires a, a, a human on the other end who's writing that music that is really in touch with their emotions, you know. And that's not something, coming from someone who's been little bit involved with music for quite a time, that's not something I could ever see a computer doing. A computer will definitely be able to take Austin's score and generate a random variation on that, but to actually create that from the beginning, I don't see AI tools being able to do that in the foreseeable future. I could be eating my words in the future, who knows? However, does that mean that all AI tools are gonna die? No, AI tools are very difficult at the moment because the same people that are evangelical about AI tools were pretty much the same people that were evangelical about NFTs, were evangelical about <laughs> VR, that were evangelical about 3D printing, right? Or whatever. It's the same people that get excited about that stuff. Um, but this definitely feels different. Some of the stuff that I've been playing around with, uh, if you've got an RPG and it's got two million lines of dialogue in it, you used to have to go hire a bunch of actors 
go through their agents, pay the union, uh, sit in the studio for hours getting them to perform every single line. AI tools can now do that exact same process in minutes. And it's scarily good for a game, like an RPG type thing that might have, say, five different you know, um, dialogue branching options and every time you interact with a character, you know, that sort of stuff. AI can do that now. AI could do that a year ago and that sort of thing. However, there's also people that make games like, you know, my good friends in Sweden, the machine games guys that have done the Wolfenstein games, and they hire actors and do motion capture, and the actors that are doing the cutscenes in those games are performing the parts in a very similar setup that you would have seen like James Cameron doing on Avatar, right? They're, they're wearing the suits, they've got all the face tracking things, they're performing, the, they learn their lines, they have real emotions, they have real tears, they have real shouting, they have you know, real whatever it is that they're doing. These AI tools cannot do that, right? They definitely cannot do that. Can it write and perform a million dialogue tree lines for an RPG? Absolutely. Can it do deep connecting uh, Last of Us type acting? No way. I don't think so. Um, I suppose when we think about composers, the new school, and the way they're coming up, I just wonder if they're going to be more in tune with AI or they're going to adapt to that model as well. Um, I spoke to Gary Scheinman a number of years ago. Who knows Gary Scheinman? Anyone know who Gary Scheinman is? Composer? Bioshock, people. Bioshock. Yeah. <laughs> So he, he composed uh, for Bioshock, but he actually teaches at the University of Southern California. And I remember him telling me that a lot of composers coming up these days actually want to be game composers. They don't want to be film composers. So what would you say to composers that are coming up in this day and age? Because if there's more game composers as well, it's going to be more competitive as well. I, I don't, I, I mean, I don't care about the competitive thing. I really, I, I don't have time for that, but... Um, I, well, yeah, I mean, I mean more in terms of um, how someone can be more distinctive, mm. I suppose. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think you nailed it there, actually, is that being distinctive is the most important thing. Um, it isn't just a service job. So your, your, your job isn't just to turn up and, and be the person that produces the music. You know, um, you know get an order and you, you make the music and send it off. There's definitely people that do that sort of thing, but that's not going to be enough, I think, moving into the future. I think, yeah, AI will be able to do that sort of thing. Yeah. But coming up with, like, Gary Scheinman's Bioshock score, AI is not going to be able to do no, that. No, right? not at all. That takes someone who's, like, incredibly talented and... Um, that music is his language, right? Music is Gary Scheinman's. I mean, if you listen to the Bioshock score, anybody who's played Bioshock games will know that music is absolutely stunning. Again, a game with a really strong vision. Uh, he is a composer with a really strong vision, and the, the two married together. It's absolutely fantastic. Um, so any advice for any, you know, one of Gary's students or the younger sort of folks, it's all about trying to come up with your own unique... Uh, voice, your own unique way of approaching a project. Your job isn't to turn up and do an impression of what you think someone writing music for a video game is. Your job isn't to turn up and just fill a order from the boss or whatever. Um, your job is to turn up as the musical emotion expert who's going to enhance the project as a whole. Take their vision and enhance it as a, as a whole. That's definitely a skill that comes with time. It takes uh, a lot of time. It takes communication skills, uh, talking to people, working with people. Um, it takes uh, 
I, I like to try to say to people, you've got to really fuel your own taste. So you've got to uh, expose yourself to as many different uh, mediums and, and styles and genres and sounds and ideas and whatever it is, as many different things as possible. Really broaden your horizons. So you can get really good at saying, I like this, not really like that, I like this, I'm not really like that. That feels appropriate, that doesn't feel appropriate, that feels appropriate, that doesn't feel appropriate. So when you're on a project, you can make a decision that says, this melody works, this melody doesn't. This melody works, this melody doesn't. And by works, what I mean is that it, it works for the project. It enhances the vision of the project. Oh, wow. Such a science to it, isn't there? Too pretentious. <laughs> Do you want to swear again? Uh, not yet, but I'm trying to be good. <laughs> it's actually interesting because Jeffrey Day, that co-composed Atomic Heart, he actually used a program called Moises to help compose it, which basically you upload an MP3 and it separates all the different layers. So it could separate bass, drums, guitar, and he used that to compose the remix stuff of all the Russian songs. I'm wondering if you've ever mucked around with that. Yeah, I've got, I mean, I've got other tools that are probably better than the AI yeah. stuff that Ooh. I have. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, yeah, um, uh, it gets real ticky, but I've, I've got, like, great stuff that will go through and apply five different algorithms, and then we'll combine the outcome of mm. all of those, so you get something that's, like, really crisp and clear uh, and fantastic. I love that sort of stuff because I can dig up, like, old movies, and then I can run the soundtrack for that through it, and you can separate like um, uh, all the string parts out and the brass parts, but you can also separate all the sound effects out and get the noise tracks and all that. Mm. It's incredibly geeky, I'm sorry. But, um, but yeah, anyway, there's stuff you can do with it. So you have, well, you have a little motto, I suppose. You separate an hour a day to listen to any type of music? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. yeah. Mm. What, do you just go on YouTube and just... Um, play anything or no, Spotify? No, so yeah, that's a big part of my practice is... Um, so, when you, obviously, when you're doing this stuff all day, you find yourself uh, around music all day, and it can be like the last thing that you want to do at the end of the day is go listen to new music. So I found myself after a while, just I wasn't listening to anything new. Um, so I got into a habit of doing a just daily practice whenever I wake up in the morning, and I just sit there and we'll listen to music for, it can be half an hour, it can be an hour or something like that. And I'll just browse around, go down through rabbit holes and things like that. Um, it's a good way of kind of waking my ears up in the morning and getting used to like hearing things. It might get me out of bad habits that I find myself sort of navigating towards and I'll hear somebody else do something different in a situation like that and I can sort of figure out ways to do it. Um, but it's just part of that creative process for sure. Mm. Before we uh, wrap up for Q&A, I am curious, what would be your favorite soundtracks? Uh, other than the ones I've listed already? Yeah, or like a sp specific one that might stand out. Gosh. I, know, I know you had David Wise's um, bonus level as your ringtone at one point. Oh gosh, one time, hey. Um, I think the one that stood out for me over the last couple of years, just recently, was um, the Shadow Warrior 3 soundtrack was really cool. Um, I don't know if anybody's heard it, but it, it, it's, it's kind of like hip hop kung fu movie type stuff. Um, but it was, I loved it because it really just nailed the vision of the project. It, re it represented the vision of that. Um, I'm sure everybody can share in this sentiment sometimes. You can very much run into this trap where there's these games that start to feel really samey after a while. And a big part of that is the music. There's no like distinguishable musical identity between these different games. They all just sort of start sounding the same. And so I love when somebody cl very clearly has been on a very solid creative journey to come up with something uh, that fits the unique vision of that project. And I think Shadow Warrior 3 was kind of cool. That stood out to me, for sure. Okay. 
Cool. And with that, we will wrap up for Q&A. So there should be some mics going around. So ask your best questions. Do we have a mic? Yeah. Mick's taken time out of his insanely ridiculous busy schedule to be it's here. It's a pleasure. <laughs> so Do we have questions? Yeah. There Are there microphones around? Down the front. I can always bring one. Oh, you found it? Oh, it's right there? Okay. Okay, there it is. So there's a microphone down the front, so your right-hand side, that should work. Hi, Mick. Hey, man. Um, I was just curious as to what your biggest musical influences were growing up, so like bands or solo artists. I was just, I was just curious. Yeah, that's cool. Um, Jimi Hendrix, man. Yes. Nice. Yeah. It's so weird, like, I still listen to that stuff now, and I'm like, man, what, how the hell did they get that stuff down? You know, like, just... A lot of drugs. <laughs> <laughs> quote of the night, quote of the night. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, it's interesting, so since like 2020, I've been working with a lot of bands doing music production stuff, which I, I thoroughly love. Um, and it's probably no like, uh, gosh, how do I say this? Holy shit, I might be running myself into trouble here. Drugs are around. I'm like straight edge, I don't touch anything, right? I, I'm super like, I, I don't eat animals, I, um, you know, I don't drink, I don't drug, I'm like super straight and all that sort of thing. But I've definitely, you know, met people and know people that, that have, have a dependency on that sort of stuff and use that sort of stuff and all that sort of thing. And um, uh, I think the truth of it is it really does get in the way of what you're trying to do. So I, I think, yeah, of course, there was a lot of drugs running around the 60s and Hendrix and LSD and all that sort of wonderful stuff. But um, there was, I think even if you strip that stuff away, there's still some amazing, amazing stuff there. So uh, Jimi Hendrix is what I'll say. Thanks for the question, man. <laughs> hey Mick. Hey. How are you going? Um, apart from the, I guess what I want to ask is, apart from that very sage advice of practice, 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 what kind of advice would you have to someone who wants to try and attack the areas that they feel they're weak in musically or technically? Yeah, the only skill you need is perseverance. Okay, that's really I, important. I like that one. Only skill you need is perseverance. Um, Self-assessment is really good. So what am I not good at, right? Uh, I know my strengths, I know my weaknesses as well, and I want to make sure I'm working on my weaknesses all the time. It just takes time, just perseverance. Uh, writing music, I can walk in my room sometimes, and it's just all there. Everything that comes out is perfect. It fits the game, it sounds cool, it all works, it's unique, it feels great. Other days I walk in and it's like I've never done it before and I'm writhing around on the floor crying. Um, but it's perseverance, it's just sort of, just sticking with it. So perseverance is the only skill you need. Thanks for the question, cheers. Uh, hey Mick, uh, love your work. Um, personally, one of my uh, favorite songs that you've done is uh, The Partisan that you did for Wolfenstein Old Blood. Um, I'd, I'd just like to ask, uh, what inspired you to uh, write that song? I heard it's, um, it's an adaptation of a um, yeah. World War II uh, resistance song. Mm -hmm. And uh, what, what made you want to uh, 
create what you created uh, using that tem using that yeah the um bricks. that idea definitely came from the developers i think it might have been jens who was the creative director that had the idea of doing the partisan uh and they kind of just let me do with it what i wanted to do uh i'm big fan of tex perkins and um so i reached out to tex and i said i'm doing a cover of the partisan um for a video game do you want to do it and uh, I was kind of worried because it's, it's heavy, you know, it sort of gets a bit heavy at some point. And he, he doesn't really stray into that territory that too much, but he was totally down for it. He really loved, oh gosh, I've drawn a blank. Oh, who did the cover of The Partisan in the 60s? I can hear it in my head, but I don't know. I can't remember. Anyway, he was a big fan of that version. So he, was, he loved the song and was totally behind it. I think Tex really bought that, um, brought that into fruition. We recorded that in Melbourne which was really cool and exciting. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that was just one of those perfect sort of things that all came together, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for the question. Hello. Hey, mate. Um, uh, you mentioned earlier that part of your um, practice routine is uh, listening to music. Um, and I'm assuming that's part of a larger practice routine that also involves instrumental practice. Um, I am curious uh, if you could elaborate a bit more on what that includes and uh, how it influences your composition and composition process. Um, I'm thinking of a particular example. I remember a, a GDC talk you uh, mentioned you were lent a nine-string guitar for the first yeah. Doom game. Um, I'm imagining like playing around th things like that obviously influences the process and yeah. wondering if you could expand on things like that yeah. as well. Yeah, a couple of quick things I could say. So always getting some new technology or some new device or something like that could open up new possibilities because it allows you to kind of shed the baggage that you've bought from the last project and it cr gives you this new interface that you've got to learn to use. So a nine-string guitar is that, a new synthesizer is that. The nine-string was a bit weird. I ended up giving it to my friend uh, Frederick Thurendendal from Meshuga. Uh, even he doesn't know what to do with it, so whatever. Uh, <laughs> um, another quick thing I can give you for that, um, I borrowed this uh, tip from Chris Height, who was the audio director on uh, Doom 2016, incredible audio director, and he, with the guys there, would do what he called Weird Wednesdays where they would just get weird gear and random things and patch it wrong and do just like try to shed all the creative inhibitions that you've got and just have an hour or two where they just, just be weird for the sake of being weird, right? So weird Wednesdays, so I like to do that as well. I think that's really good. You can get really stuck in the rut of things, you know, especially a computer is always the same, it looks the same, it reacts the same, it kind of leads you down a path. And um, so just trying to just shed that for, and it doesn't matter, like nobody ever has to hear it, right? Just make music or make sounds like nobody's ever gonna hear it and uh, try and try and spark that creative uh, juice in your mind there. I hope that helps. Thank you. Thank you. Howdy. Hello. Um, I was just curious of how your mentality has changed from say Doom 2016 and then comparison to a project like Index from Three Teeth, Whoa. the last album you just worked on. Cool. I was also wondering about how some of your techniques have changed between those two projects as well. Yeah, it's interesting. So I jumped into work with uh, Three Teeth, who are an absolutely fantastic industrial band, um, pretty much straight after Doom Eternal. Um, I wanted to just do some music stuff for a while. So I wanted to work with uh, just friends um, so worked, uh, Bring Me the Horizon and Three Teeth and Motionless and White and Monuments and Gravemind and others that I can't, I've totally forgotten, gone a blank on. But anyway, just, just cool friends, just making cool tunes and just cool music. And um, 
it was great. Like video games are fantastic, but the it's the the truth of it is that the 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 industry can be very corporate as well, very very corporate. And when working on a music project where you're just making an album, you just get to you know focus on making a really good song. And after spending like two years on a pretty pretty stressful project, it was just fun to just like write cool songs and write great stuff like that. Um, those guys really believe in a meritocracy, so they just. Every, anything goes, everybody has complete freedom. Um, I would have loved to have gone and hung out with them. They rented a house, the Joshua Tree, uh, in, uh, out in the middle of the desert to write the album, but I was stuck in Brisbane because uh, it was COVID at the time. Um, and yeah, so mentality was just try to make good music, yeah. Uh, I, hope that, uh, I hope that answers your question, it's a yeah. good question. Thank you very much. Thank you. I think we have time for one more question. So don't forget, I mean, we've got, I think they usually try to get us out here within half an hour, but I will hang out outside there for as long as it takes to answer each and every question, shake everybody's hand, meet everybody, do whatever you want me to do. So I'll be out there. Anybody who wants to come have a chat, come afterwards. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so lucky last. Lucky last. So Mick. I had the pleasure of meeting you when we when you did the Killer Instinct panel ten years ago, and it was actually a fantastic experience having you play the music on screen to the crowd and everything else. Uh, the part where you actually had everyone recording their vocals to essentially be in the game. I went and got the game and tried to find the parts that we had recorded, and I never found any. Oh, they're definitely there. <laughs> it's yeah, in Thunder's the theme. Uh, I just yeah. wondered. Uh, you actually got everyone to do a combo breaker as part of the recording. Did that make it into the game? Ooh. And if, if I was, I actually didn't know parts of it had made it into the game from listening. So my question was going to be, why? Um, what was the reasons for leaving them out? But obviously that's not correct. I don't now. think so. No, I think like when you're recording, you just try and capture as much stuff as you can. Yep. And I remember that when we were doing the the combo breaker thing, they hadn't put the counter breakers into the game yet which also needed a voiceover line. And so I'd imagine that the reason it wasn't included was probably because we had one recording of a combo breaker, but not the alternative for the uh, counter breaker. So we didn't want that discrepancy of the, the two differences there. Um, I've got a video up somewhere, it might be hiding on my Instagram page somewhere, where it actually mm -hmm. shows the stems where the thunder uh, chant is, the recording from PAX, and it in-game. So you can definitely see it there. It's nice. For sure it's there. Well, yeah. if I'm lucky last, can we finish this on a combo breaker? Oh, I'm not going to do that, no. <laughs> oh, no. Okay, okay. I'll tell you what. I'll do that instead. There you are. <laughs> cool. Thanks so much, everyone, Shit. for coming out tonight. Fuck. That's $1,000 for generosity, yeah. everybody. And that is a wrap. Thank you so much for spending your evening with us. Uh, Mick will be out somewhere, so you can find him and ask him your questions and get him to sign anything. So yeah, have a, have a safe night. Cheers, everyone. Have a nice pack, everybody. Thanks, Reese.